Let us pray together. Lord, we have come to sit under the ministry of your word. We have come conscious of our absolute dependence on you by the ministry of your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds, to warm our hearts, and to transform our very lives. Gracious God, open our eyes, we pray, to behold wonderful things out of your law. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, our risen, our reigning, and our returning King. Amen. Will you turn with me, please, in your Bibles, if you have one before you, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 21. As you do so, let me say what a great privilege I count it to be with you here this morning. I've known John for nearly 20 years. As I said, in Sunday school, we see each other rarely, but when we do meet up, it's as if we had met just yesterday. He's been a faithful dear brother, a man who's held in the highest regard by those who know him in the Christian ministry. Uh, I was privileged to minister a weekend in Rivermont in Lynchburg some years ago and followed with interest uh, John's coming back to Monroe. I do want to thank John and the elders for their kind invitation a lady after the Sunday school hour said to me, I do love your accent. I could listen to it all day. Well, the little boy in Tacoma said to his mother, Mummy, is that man from China? So I'm not quite sure <laughs> what she meant by my accent. Although the little boy could have said something worse. He could have said, Mummy, is that man from England? Let us hear the word of God. Let me first just set the context for you. You'll notice at the end of verse 20, Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Christ of God. It's the great turning point in the gospel narrative. Peter has begun to grasp who Jesus Christ really is. And it's at that significant moment that Jesus then says, as Luke records for us, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory and the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see 
the kingdom of God. This is the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther pinned his 95 theses to the castle door, the church castle door in Wittenberg, 31st October 1517, he had no idea at all that he was initiating a seismic moment in the life and history of the Christian church. But in the providence of God, he was. And the Reformation was many things. But at the heart of the Reformation was this deep concern that the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, have restored to them the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Principally, Luther was concerned that people could understand once again that we are saved and made right with God, not by our own endeavors, godly, holy, religious though they be, but that we are reconciled to God, saved from the wrath which is to come, become the children of God purely and solely by the free grace of God in his Son, Jesus Christ. Luther wanted to give all the glory to God in the work of salvation. But no less did Martin Luther and the great reformers who followed him want the church to understand that the life of faith is not simply a life that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It is a life that seeks to live to the praise of God in this world. And so the very first of Luther's 95 theses declared that when the Lord Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life was to be a life of repentance. We do not simply repent, that is, turn from our sins to God once and for all, but that we do so throughout the whole course of our lives. And this, I think, is what our Lord Jesus Christ is impressing on his disciples when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He wants these disciples and everyone else who was listening in to understand that a Christian was not simply a believer, but also a follower unto death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, given by God for the life of the world. To everyone, he says, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me if you would truly belong to me. And perhaps for John Calvin, more than any other of the great magisterial reformers, self-denial 
Denying yourself and taking up your cross daily, self-denial was nothing less than a gospel birthmark. When God brings anyone to saving faith in his son, Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit renews our hearts and brings us to the new birth, he marks that new birth with certain definable, discernible marks. And among those definable, discernible marks are self-denial and daily taking up our cross and following Christ. According to our Lord Jesus Christ here, self-denial and taking up our cross daily is not an option for a Christian. It is an absolute imperative. If anyone would come after me, if you are seriously concerned to belong to me, to be part of my kingdom, to belong to me now and through the ages of eternity, understand this. You must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, I think when you first hear those words, they sound desperately forbidding. Deny yourself. Taking up the cross daily. And the cross, of course, was an instrument of execution. Our Lord was not saying you have daily to, to bear with the little troubles and difficulties that might cross your path. He's saying, unless you are ready to die every day for me, unless you are ready, as God requires it, to lay down your life for my sake, you cannot be my disciple. It sounds so forbidding. But actually, it's the very very reverse. Because self-denial and taking up our cross daily helps us to find the true happiness that we were created for. That's one of the glories of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I love the Heidelberg Catechism, especially the first question and answer. It's, it's stellar. But there is something magnificently brief but eloquent about the opening question and answer of the Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? What is the great purpose of our creation? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is what our Lord Jesus Christ is saying to his disciples. However counterintuitive it might seem to you. When you lose your life, verse 24, you will find it. When you lose your life, you will actually find it. So, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I want to say four things this morning. Number one, what did Jesus mean by denying yourself, or perhaps better, what did Jesus not mean by denying yourself? In the years before the Reformation, self-denial had come to be identified with excessive fasting and tithing. And of course, that reflects 
what we read in the New Testament, Luke chapter 18. Remember the Pharisee and the publican who go up to the temple to pray? And the Pharisee, he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like, like this tax collector, this dreg of society. I fast twice a week. Am I not something to behold? I fast twice a week. I, I tithe all that I have. He was going beyond the law. The law required fasting once a week and tithing certain aspects. Oh, says the Pharisee, I, I tithe all that I have and I fast twice a week. He self-preened himself. Look at me. What a good boy am I. And that was what the reformers found. Self-denial had been reduced to those categories, it never touched the heart. Remember Jesus' withering words to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, quoting Isaiah 29, this people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God looks on the heart. My son, give me your heart. God sees past all that we do to discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. The motivation that lies behind fasting and tithing and this service and that service, it's the motivation that counts with God. So when Jesus speaks here about denying yourself, he's not simply speaking about the outward religious observances of fasting and tithing or even self-beating that had come to be the norm in medieval Christianity. God looks on the heart. So secondly, what did Jesus actually mean then when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me? What does it mean to deny yourself and to take up the cross, the instrument of execution, daily, what does that actually mean? Well, I think very simply our Lord Jesus Christ is saying this. Unless you are ready to dethrone self and enthrone me, you cannot be my disciple. So long as you go about seeking your own in this life. So long as you make yourself and your comforts and your attainments and your achievements the first goal of your life, you cannot be my disciple. You see, sin is not simply a little compartment here and there in our lives. Sin has infected and affected pervasively all that we are. There isn't one aspect of our humanity that has not been invaded by, tainted by, skewered by sin. Self-denial is therefore putting to death everything in your life that dishonors God 
and that threatens your growth into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Self-denial is dethroning self and enthroning the Savior. In the gospel, God has what we might call a proximate purpose and an ultimate purpose. God's proximate purpose is our salvation. But his ultimate purpose is not our salvation, but the glory of his Son. Romans 8, 29. He predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his Son in order that he, Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. You and I are not the ultimate object of God's salvation. We are his proximate purpose. The glory of his son, Jesus Christ, is God's ultimate end goal in saving sinners. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And that's why our Lord Jesus Christ is saying to those who are perhaps considering following him and identifying with the disciple band, you need to understand this. In belonging to me, you will no longer be numero uno. The gospel comes to dethrone self and to enthrone the Savior. To take up your cross daily then means, I think, very simply to embrace the way of the Savior who loved us and who gave himself for us. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ embraced the cross, despising its shame, says the writer to the Hebrews. So we are to follow in his way. John Calvin has a wonderful way of explicating this. He talks about the Holy Spirit's ministry of replication. What the Holy Spirit first produced in Christ, he comes to replicate in the people of Christ. He takes the template of the holy humanity of the Son of God and he overlays that on our lives to conform us to his likeness. And what was the great hallmark of the holy humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was the great hallmark of his holy humanity? Not my will, but thy will be done. I've come from heaven, John 6, not to do my own will, but the will of him who, come, who, who has sent me. I've come not to enthrone myself. I've come to enthrone the Father who sent me. I'm the obedient servant who has come to do for the people of God what they could never do for themselves. And he models for us and he magnifies for us what it means to deny self. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, as the cup of God's wrath confronts him and the shadow of the cross begins to penetrate his human soul. And the Lord, as it were, for the first time, begins existentially and experientially to understand what it will mean for him to be the great sin bearer. He says, Father, if it be possible, 
let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to his disciples, that's to be one of the great hallmark, birthmarks of those who truly belong to me. They will be identified as those who seek not their own, but who place me on the throne and have me at the epicenter of their lives. And John Calvin says in regard to this verse, for Christ's meaning is that there will be no end to our warfare till we leave the world. Jesus emphasizes the word daily, take up your cross daily. What is he saying? He's saying in this world you will have tribulation. We're living effectively, are we not, in your country and mine, in a post-Christian society. Good is being called evil. Evil is being called good. Wickedness is being promoted in the corridors of power. Legislation is being passed in my country that is an affront to God. It's an abomination to God. It's a trampling of the laws of God. And the word of God reminds us that this is our calling in the world daily. To walk the way of Jesus Christ notwithstanding the culture, the society, or the world, refusing to be diverted from the Savior, no matter what the cost may be. Now, we've been shielded in your country and mine. Your country, since the Pilgrim Fathers first came, and my country, hundreds or so years before with the Reformation, we've been shielded by so many hundreds of years of Christian influence and Christian teaching. That's eroding all the time. Brothers and sisters in Christ in Iraq and Syria and Iran today, they've never had that shield. They know what it is to take up their cross daily. They know what it is every day to face the day thinking, Lord, this may be my last day in this world because I bear the name of Jesus Christ. And our Lord is unambiguous. He doesn't say, let's have a discussion Maybe some would come and say, Lord, does it have to be so radical? Do you know, the gospel is all or nothing, actually. It's all or nothing. And that's the great question that confronts us. Is Jesus Christ worth this? Absolutely. He is the Savior of the world. He's the friend of sinners. He's the only way to the Father. Worth it. He is worth one life and 10,000 times 10,000 lives. But thirdly, why is the self-denial so vitally important? Well, I've touched on it, but Jesus strikingly develops it in the two verses that follow. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. What is Jesus telling his disciples here? Well, he's saying to them, you will only ever find your true self when you forget about yourself. 
You know, for the past 50 years or so, the evangelical world has been deluged with books on self-esteem. You know, we need to recover self-esteem. People are important. People matter. Well, that's true. Every individual matters because they're made in the image of God. Whatever their history, their culture, their, their background, their race, even their religion, they matter to God. But we find ourselves not by seeking self-esteem, said Jesus. We find ourselves by losing ourselves. If you would save your life, lose it. That is to say, give it up to me. Give it all over to me and you will find yourself. Isn't that what the great Augustine said right at the beginning of the Confessions? Maybe some of you have read the Confessions. It's just a stunning book. It's a 300-page prose prayer that interestingly never once mentions the name of Jesus, but that's another question. Um, It's a stunning, absolutely engrossing, stunning, unputdownable read. And right in the first paragraph, he says, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts can find no rest till they find that rest in you. Self-denial, enthroning Christ and dethroning ourselves, resisting what dishonors God and embracing what God loves. This is the way to find ourselves because we were made for God. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've puzzled about your life. Who am I? What am I? Why am I here? Life seems so full of frustrations and contradictions. Absolutely, we live in a fallen world. We find ourselves when we return to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. When we come home. Isn't that one of the great pictures of salvation? The good shepherd who leaves the ninety and nine and who goes out to bring back home the sheep that was lost. You know, whenever I think of that... um, George Beverly Shea, uh, Billy Graham's soloist, you must have heard of George Beverly Shea, one of his great hymns he would sing, there were 99 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. Well, that's not true, actually. When you read the gospel, when you read Luke 15, the 99 are left in the open country, a prey to wolves and vagabonds. Why would any shepherd leave 99 I pray because there was one that was lost. And he would move moor and mountain to bring that one lost sheep home. The gospel comes to bring us home. To the God who made us, to the God who loves us, to the Son of God who shed his life's blood to make atonement for our sin. And that's why the gospel of self-denial begins when we abandon ourselves and come to Jesus Christ with empty hands. And that's hard for some of us. Some of us have been privileged with our education, our history, our heritage, our family. We're respectable. But until we say, nothing in my hands I bring, nothing of myself, simply to your cross I cling, naked come to you for rest. Helpless come to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. 
Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's self-denial. That's where it begins. Recognizing I've got nothing to give to God. All my education, all my privileges, all my brain power, all my inherited resources, all my family connections. I have to come and stand beside the vilest offender. I have to come and hold hands with, with the prostitute, the drunkard, the murderer, the reviler. I have to stand with them and say, I'm one with you. I've got nothing to give to God. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to his cross I cling. That's where self-denial begins. That's where taking up the cross begins. But a fourth thing, why is self-denial an inevitable gospel birthmark? I said earlier that for John Calvin, denying ourselves was an inevitable gospel birthmark. Well, it's inevitable because of this. That when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they are united to Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is, someone who has been brought into saving union with Christ. And self-denial is part of the family likeness. I quoted John 6 earlier. Is it verse 38? I have come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. One of the great marks of the Savior's life was his refusal, his refusal to exalt self at the expense of the glory of his Father, Remember in the temptation, Satan comes and says, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. There's an easier way to dominion Jesus than going to the cross. And Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus humbled himself. He pursued the way of the cross with all its costliness, that we will never fathom to the utmost ages of eternity, we will always be saying, what did it mean for you, Lord Jesus Christ, to die in my place and for my sake? What did it mean for you to deny yourself and take up your cross in obedience to the Heavenly Father? That's the family likeness that God is conforming us to. That's, that's what we today are increasingly being challenged to as we live in a post-Christian world. What will make its mark in this world? That we live such lives that make this world scratch their head and say, what makes these people like this? What makes them willing to embrace suffering and cost and difficulty and hardship? Jesus Christ. You know, in the early church, the impact was remarkable. Jesus chose 12 disciples. One of them was a traitor. Very soon, the gospel begins to spread out. It begins to permeate the heart of the Roman Empire. There were no evangelistic campaigns. 
I don't mean you shouldn't have them, but I'm just making a point. There are no evangelistic campaigns. There are no special meetings. They worship God so that people would come into their assemblies and say, my, what a people this is. Worship was elevated. There was reverence. And then they lived such distinctively different lives. People couldn't make sense of it. But there was a, an attractiveness about their lives. And even when the Romans tried to burn them to submission and throw them to the lions for submission, they couldn't conquer the spirit of these men and women, boys and girls, who had denied themselves and taken up their cross. What this world, what your nation and mine needs to see more than anything else are churches and Christians living replicated Christ-like lives. So Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, here's the bottom line, non-negotiable, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, and where will Jesus lead us to? He will lead us to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, forgive us that we so trivialize the gospel of your Son. Oh, for grace to so prize our Savior that we would count all things but loss compared to the excellency of knowing him. And we ask it in his name. Amen.